Hey, welcome to Big Happy Life, the show that's all about making conscious choices about your habits so that achieving your goals becomes easier, more fun, and you enjoy yourself more along the way. I'm your host, Natalie Britt, and this week we're talking about how to think positively when you don't feel positive. Over 300 million people worldwide experience depression in their lifetimes. And if, like me, you are one of those people, then knowing how to think positively when you feel low is a really important strategy, not just as part of your overall happiness, but also your everyday ability to keep moving forward, to get the things done that you need to get done, and also to move towards the goals that you set for yourself and the life that you're building for yourself. Of course, it's not all about depression. There are plenty of times when you could feel low, and it's not about depression. It's just about stuff that's going on and feeling overwhelmed or stressed. So you basically end up in this headspace where if someone tells you, just think positively, be grateful for the good things in your life, what you really want to do is smack them. This episode has real personal value to me because over the years I've done a lot of work on my mindset. And so I'm quite open to some of the more woo-woo things out there when it comes to personal development and positive thinking. The kind of things that, yes, if I did recommend them and you were in the mood to smack somebody, you probably would want to smack me. And although I know these things work, there are some days, even now, where they don't work for me. And I also know there was a point in my life where I wasn't ready for them. And I couldn't make good use of them because the distance between my headspace and the headspace I needed in order to do those things was far too great. And I noticed the same with friends and clients who want to feel better, want to do better, but are in that space where jumping into positive thinking feels like too big a leap. So finding things that feel more real, more appropriate in that headspace becomes really, really important. So what I thought might work here is rather than talk about positive thinking, talk about productive thinking and unproductive thinking. Because arguably the first step of positive thinking is simply making your thinking work for you, making it productive, useful. Where unproductive thinking leaves you stuck and feeling lost or low for much longer periods of time and much more often, productive thinking helps you learn about yourself, gather information and use it in such a way that you end up feeling better, stronger, more resilient and then better able to move forward and do the other cool things that you want to do. What I found in my life was that once I got into a spiral of negative thinking or unproductive thinking, everything kind of compounded it. One thought led to the next, led to the next, led to the next, and I would just drive myself into a pit, basically. And all that has to happen in order to change that is the chance to break the pattern. You don't have to be all sunshine and roses. And in fact, that isn't what positive thinking is all about. And even what I'm calling productive thinking here is still a form of positive thinking because it's about deliberately shaping your thoughts and focusing your attention on things that are ultimately more useful. Productive thinking is about two things. It's about using the lows and the negative situations to learn about yourself so that you can use that information more productively in future. And it's about challenging some of the underlying beliefs you hold that ultimately make things feel worse. Because when you're able to change those, you can change your experience of the situations and that changes everything. So what I wanted to focus on here is some of the kind of starter strategies, the things that you can employ no matter how you feel, because they're more observational and they're more about learning about yourself, understanding yourself and accepting how you feel. 
in my experience, those are the things that provide the gateway to being able to do more of that positive thinking, positive psychology type stuff that can feel a little bit too out there when you first start taking control of your happiness and making conscious choices about your habits. In this episode, I'm going to explore five strategies. They are directing your attention, recognizing and welcoming balance, accepting all of your feelings no matter what they are, minding the language of your self-talk and how it shapes what feels possible to you, and breaking the link between expectations and happiness. The first strategy, directing your attention, is all about making conscious choices to overcome biases, particularly if those biases are leading you in a negative direction. If you're not familiar with biases and their purpose, here's a very quick overview. Our conscious minds are slow and deliberate in their thinking, so we can really analyze things with our conscious minds, but we don't have the capacity to process absolutely everything we see, hear, smell, everything that goes through our senses through the conscious mind. It, it can't cope with that level of information. So the subconscious mind does all of that and then only elevates the things it thinks are necessary to the conscious mind. The subconscious mind is programmed by our beliefs. So the stuff that makes it into your conscious mind has already been filtered before you see it. And those filters create biased thinking. So you end up consciously processing information. It feels real to you, but it is already skewed because of the beliefs and the biases that you hold. Let's say, for example, I am somebody who believes I'm really unlucky. So on my way to work in the morning, I get stuck behind a bus. The bus is so slow and stopping at every stop and I can't get around it because of the oncoming traffic. So I sit there and I'm thinking, ah, oh, this is typical. I'm so unlucky. I arrive a couple of minutes late for work, can't find a parking space. Yep, well, obviously it's just my luck. Then I get to the bank of elevators, there's none free, I can't get in, and I have to wait and wait. Oh, typical. Moment after moment throughout the day, I amass these experiences. I notice every single one and it weighs on me as proof that I am just unlucky. Nothing ever goes my way. But if at the end of the day I were to sit down and put all of those memories together, what I would end up with is probably 10 to 15 minutes worth of footage so where is the rest and what happened in that time? I'd be willing to bet there are just as many examples of things going in your favor, but what happens is your subconscious goes, nah, not relevant, not relevant, not relevant, because there is no belief that causes those things to be elevated to the conscious mind to go, see, I found something, it's proof. So the first step in breaking this pattern is to actively seek information. So to program your subconscious to say, just elevate this stuff to you, I wanna know about it, send it my way so that I can take a look. If I stick with the unlucky example, what I would need to do is just look around and pay attention to the little things that go my way. The days when I wake up feeling refreshed just a minute before my alarm clock goes off. The days where I put the shower on and the temperature is exactly what I like. The tiny coincidences that mean I don't have to get up from my desk to go and talk to somebody because they come to me at just the moment that I need them. What I would likely find is that there are just as many of those moments, maybe even more of those moments, as there are of the unlucky ones. One of the strategies you read about in the positive psychology literature is gratitude and directing your attention is the kind of early stages of that. Instead of necessarily being deliberately grateful, it's just about noticing those moments exist. Another way to productively direct your attention is to direct your attention towards yourself and the things that create patterns in the way you feel, think and behave. What are the patterns you notice that tend to lead you towards feeling good? 
or the patterns that actually go the opposite way and leave you stressed or overwhelmed. If you find that some of the things you notice in those patterns are actually related to things other people are doing or things that feel like they're out of your control, then that's probably going to involve a change in mindset where you're going to need to identify where your power does lie within the situation or you're going to have to change how you think about what's happening. The last strategy we look at in this podcast may help with that. And it's all about breaking the link between expectations and happiness. If it's something within your control, then of course you can decide whether or not to change it. And if you uncover something that you think, mm, okay, well, I know I need to change that, but I haven't got a clue how, then visit the show notes page at bighappylife.blog to ask the question, and I'll either answer it directly or I'll record future podcast episodes to answer those questions. And if you prefer not to post publicly, you can email at bighappylife6 at gmail.com to ask your question and I'll reply to you directly. Strategy number two involves recognizing and welcoming balance. I think so often we put massive pressure on ourselves to be happy all the time. And if we're not happy, we feel like we've done something wrong. But in actual fact, a happy life involves an enormous array of emotions. How would we even know we were happy if we didn't experience something that wasn't happiness? And often it's the tragedies and the adversities that we live through that provide the initial reason to even take conscious control of our emotions, our habits, our choices often because we're stretched beyond our existing current capabilities and we have to learn and we have to grow. So although super uncomfortable at the time, massively rewarding in the end. That was certainly what happened for me when I became a parent. Just the world fell out from underneath me and my whole identity crumbled around me. Um, and I'm not even using language that's too dramatic. It was horrific just because I wasn't emotionally prepared for what I was gonna go through, and because I went into it thinking I was gonna be brilliant and then wasn't, I had all of that to deal with. But it was that experience that created enough of a catalyst for me to dig deep enough in myself and go, right, this can't carry on, so what are you gonna do about it? After that experience, I started to look back at some of the other things in my life and realized that every single time I'd experienced something incredibly tough, it had led me to make some form of improvement. And with that realization, I'm less fearful of those situations now because what I know about myself is A, I'll get through them, and B, I will learn something really valuable that later on will become important in terms of resilience, strength, managing stress, and doing all the things that ultimately you have to be able to do if you want to live a balanced and happy life. So the productive habit here is Welcome the impermanence of happiness. Lows and difficult emotions don't mean you're not happy. They simply mean you're going through something else right now, and probably something else that will later prove useful. Which ties very well into the third tip, which is accepting all feelings. One of the worst things we can do is judge ourselves for how we feel. I remember when my dad died, people judged my mom because they thought she moved on too soon. She was dating about a year after he died. But then a family friend lost her husband and she was still grieving four or five years later and people judged her because she went on for too long. But I think we do this to ourselves as well. We think, I shouldn't be angry. I'm just making a mountain out of a molehill. I shouldn't feel sad because nobody else is. I shouldn't feel stressed because that just shows that I'm a failure and I can't cope. None of these things is true. So often it's not the emotions that derail us, it's the judgment that accompanies them, that constant beating ourselves with a stick, you're not supposed to feel this, stop, stop, stop. If I had to guess where this type of thing comes from, I'd probably say childhood. I mean, it all comes back to childhood in the end, doesn't it, really? 
I'm being flippant, but of course that's where we learn these things. If you think about how often we would normally handle a child's emotional outbursts, either by trying to calm them and stop the feeling, make it go away, because it's uncomfortable for us too, or if we don't understand where it's coming from, if we think they're being ridiculous, my son can get himself into an enormous state about Rice Krispies or a piece of cheese. And in those situations, as much as we want to be understanding, can often make us treat those emotions dismissively. Now, I'm of course not going to talk to you about handling toddler outbursts. That's not the point. The point is, when you treat emotions with respect and acceptance, you have a much better chance of ending up understanding why they're there in the first place. Which brings me to the fourth tip, which is to mind the language of your self-talk. Now, what this is about is getting some distance between you and the thought. So what often happens is we shape our self-talk in such a way that we tie our identity to the thought or feeling. So we'll say something like, I can't go for an interview or I can't give a presentation because I'm too nervous. I'll mess that up because I have a terrible memory. I can't eat healthily. I just don't have any willpower. The goal of minding your language is instead of having your identity all mashed up in there, you know, I'm a nervous person, I don't have any willpower, you separate them out. So you say, I notice I'm feeling nervous or my thoughts are weakening my willpower. So you find a way to place yourself in the role of the observer and choose language that does that so that you can actually recognize in the moment that your thoughts are not you, but that you are having thoughts or you are having an emotion, you are experiencing whatever it is. And those things aren't you, they are just your experiences. And your self-talk can either make it feel like they are part of you, like the whole thing is woven together and you can't separate yourself, or you can deliberately use your self-talk to give you some distance and some perspective so that you're able just to get into that tiny space between you and your thoughts and feel that little bit more in control. And from there, you can decide what to do with it. One of the really important parts about acceptance is that accepting doesn't mean you have to act on them. For example, if what you're experiencing is fear or nervousness, but the reason you're experiencing those things is because you're about to take a huge leap into something really positive, then you don't want to waste your energy fighting those feelings or trying to make them go away. You want to focus your energy on achieving the big thing you're setting out to achieve. Of course, doing that is much easier said than done, and we will cover that in a later podcast. But for now, I just wanted to plant the seed that you can choose to move in a direction other than what your feelings suggest. The fact that you're feeling something doesn't mean you have to act upon it, but accepting it creates less of a fight internally. The final strategy involves making more productive links between your happiness and other things, particularly the past and your current expectations. Very often the limits we place on our happiness are because we're keeping things alive from the past that are no longer keeping themselves alive. For example, my dad was killed in a car accident when I was 15. And losing a parent at that age in those circumstances is a huge trauma. And it affected a lot of things for many, many years. If now, when I'm nearly 44, if I'm still saying, well, I can't be happy because of that trauma, then that's much more down to something that's happening in me than the event itself. Like I said earlier, if that's the situation, the most important thing to do at that stage is to accept the emotions in order to understand and work through them. The object of the exercise being to end up feeling more in control of your happiness and your emotions. That said, accepting the past and working through all the emotions that come with that is not always a straightforward process. And for many of us, we need to seek professional help 
from somebody who can guide us through that process. But the important thing is to do the work and to let that stuff go so that you can move forward and that past is no longer responsible for what's happening today. Another link that's useful to break is the one between our happiness and the actions of other people or our expectations of what they're supposed to do in order for us to be happy. If I could only be happy when my four-year-old son is in a happy, smiley, lovely mood, then I would spend quite a lot of my time unhappy because I would basically be flung around by whatever his emotions did. And at the beginning, it was a bit like that because I hadn't actually learned that my happiness levels had nothing to do with his emotional state. And that when I was able to maintain my balance, I was much better able to help him. I did the same thing years ago when I had a job where I didn't feel appreciated by my boss. And I thought, I can't be happy in this job. I'm gonna have to leave because he doesn't treat me the way I deserve to be treated. He doesn't respect me. He doesn't value me or the work I'm doing. And I got myself into such a state about it that I ended up leaving that company. Again, that was an illusion. He was not responsible for my happiness or my satisfaction in that job. It was my thinking that handed him that power and took it away from me. When you become aware of the number of situations where you're kind of reliant on someone else or something else to make you feel happy, you realize how much power you're leaving out there. And once you spot those situations, you can start breaking those links. If you're not sure how to do that, visit the show notes page at bighappylife.blog. There are some resources and some links to the work of people like Wayne Dwyer, and those kinds of things can potentially help you figure out what you want to do as your first step. So to summarize those five points again, Direct your attention, specifically challenge yourself to notice things that go in the opposite direction of your biases, particularly for the things that are not serving you well. Recognize and welcome balance. It's totally okay not to be happy all the time. And in fact, probably the times when you're not as happy will be the times when there's something to learn, something to change and something to grow from. So those are usually very productive times if you can extract the value from them. Then accept your feelings. You don't necessarily have to act upon them. The fact that they're there doesn't mean that you have to do something about them, but fighting them often makes them stick around for longer and makes you feel a lot worse. So creating a sense of ease with the fact that you're not feeling great can often just help you move through those feelings much more easily. Use your self-talk to create some distance between you and your thoughts rather than wrapping your identity up in them and giving yourself nowhere to go. And finally, break the links between your past, your expectations of other people, and your happiness. And that way you can take control of the things that you allow to affect whether or not you feel happy. And you take control of your everyday choices so that you're in charge of your emotional state and how your experiences unfold. If you'd like to comment or ask questions about any of the strategies I've mentioned in today's podcast, visit bighappylife.blog. This is the final episode in this series of the Big Happy Life podcast. So series two will launch in October 2019. If you're not a subscriber yet, but you want to be notified when the new show starts, then all you need to do is click the subscribe button in whatever podcast app or host software you're using. But until then, thanks for listening. 